This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. On this episode of Narcissist Apocalypse, we talk with an abuse survivor named Maya, and Maya was married to an emotionally abusive narcissist. It's a story of achieving, moving goalposts, entitlement, creating chaos, and post-separation, abuse. Welcome to Narcissist Apocalypse, everyone. I am Brandon Chadwick, and with me today, we have Maya. How are you? I am good. How are you? I am doing well. Thank you for asking. And if you want to be a guest like Maya is today, please do go to our website at NarcissistApocalypse.com. Top of the page, there's a button that says Guest Form. When you click on that button, it takes you to our Guest Form page. There you can read all of our instructions and either send us an email at NarcissistApocalypse at gmail.com or fill out our Guest Form and press the Submit button. And please do send it in the format that we ask for. And please keep on sending in your stories. And there is a content warning for this episode as we do discuss sexual coercion in this episode. So that is your content warning for this episode. And today you're going to hear Maya's story and Maya was dealing with someone who was entitled and kept on piling up responsibilities on to her while they did absolutely nothing. So her incline kept on being raised on her, you know, so she's continuously going uphill, uphill, more and more and more as the relationship went on where the other person was adding those things and creating chaos. So a really big thank you to Maya for being here with us today. And now I'm going to get out of my way and your way. Maya, the floor is now yours. So I grew up in a pretty typical middle-class Catholic family. Um, You know, we went to church and There was a lot of guilt, a lot of expectation. Um, My mom is somebody who I think gets a lot of um, affirmation from her kids being good people and smart and competent. And so I became this super people pleaser and this approval junkie. Like I needed to get affirmation from the outside versus like from my own um, feelings. And so I became really good at most things. Um, I don't want to brag. I did in fact get a perfect score on my kindergarten entrance exam. I don't want to make people feel uncomfortable, but 
um, that's who we're dealing with here. And um, I just was uh, good, uh, you know, in most things, you know, I was good at school. That really helped my self-esteem. Um, my parents and family, the extended family, seemed to place a lot of uh, importance on the outward appearance of um, everybody. So it was always whenever we saw somebody, it was like, oh, you look great. Did you, have you lost weight? Or like, oh, grandma thought that maybe you have been eating a little bit too much lately. So a lot of the information I was getting about who I was was from all of these outside parties. Um, when I was in 10th grade, I dated a girl and that was terrible, um, according to my family. And it could, you know, ruin my dad's business or, you know, it would look bad on our family. And so that uh, kind of crashed and burned because of that. Um, so by the time I got to college, I was, um, still really craving all of that outside affirmation. And I was, um, kissing a lot of, a lot of guys in college to get that affirmation. I was thinking, you know, if these, these people think I'm attractive and want to kiss me, they, then I must be worthy. I must be great. Um, and then uh, I met my first boyfriend in, in college, but I met him back home. Uh, we were working at a restaurant together, and he was uh, this person who needed a lot of control. He needed to know where I was at all times. He needed to talk to me the moment I walked out of class or if I was on my way to class. We would have to be talking on the phone. There were a lot of uh, demands on my appearance that it's not that I'm not wearing something that he didn't approve of or that I wasn't wearing too much makeup. He isolated me from everybody with the exception of my roommate who I lived with and by virtue of, of that relationship was able to hold on to her. And she was the person who shook me out of that and made me realize what had happened to my life and how small my circle had gotten. And I broke up with him. And that was, for me, great that I, you know, great for my self-esteem. I had this person who really liked me and I was able to see him for this abusive person that he was and then break it off with him and move on. And right after that, I had this super healthy, normal relationship. It was, it started in friendship and then eventually it ended in friendship. And I'm still friends with him to this day, but he was, uh, he was just not for me. And so I thought, well, I can move on and, and find somebody else. Cause this was around the time that I was graduating from college single for a lot of years after that, I did not really do online dating. I am in a pretty small area. So I basically was coming to terms with the possibility that I might be alone forever, that maybe I would just be um, a single person. I, <laughs> I had this tarot reading in college and 
the girl who was reading my cards was like, so I don't want to say that you're going to be alone forever, but, and then she, I don't remember anything else that she said because I was uh, so stunned by the fact that she told me that I would be alone for the rest of my life. Um, So I ended up making a lot of bad choices with people that I was dating or seeing or, you know, kissing. Um, I was pursued by an unavailable man. I dated someone who was just way too young for me. Uh, I essentially started to worry because here I am in my late 20s. Am I going to meet anybody? Am I going to get married? Am I going to have children? Because I want all of those things. And if for the past several years, I haven't met anybody then how am I going to have children like I want to? So, so far, what we've heard here, or what I've heard, has been, first and foremost, you're an achiever. Yes. You, you like to achieve. You know, that was kind of built into you. It's a way of getting some sort of validation for yourself that you're good. Right. And you're getting some validation from other people, and you're getting this legitimate source. I did this. I'm good. I'm worthy. And then you have these messages from your family that are telling you that you are not good and that you are not worthy. You're also pursuing relationships here a lot, it seems. And you seem to be putting really a big focus on, you know, a relationship being a huge part of what you have to do or who you are as like your identity. So can you discuss this part of your identity where this relationship seems to be really needed? And were there other aspects of you in your life that you haven't mentioned that would be fulfilling to you? And I guess, you know, what are your kind of other beliefs for you in life at this point, because you're getting a lot of external validation and needing that, obviously, when you put that in the wrong hands, which we're going to find out that it's not going to be a very good thing at all. Um, you know, are there other issues we haven't even mentioned that um, you have? I need to be successful at everything. And sometimes I feel like when I succeed at something, I have to find the next challenge so I can prove again that I'm an achiever, that I've achieved things. Uh, My vision of a life beginning to end is you grow up and you have experiences and then you get married and you have kids. And that is what you're meant to do, according to my belief system at the time. And so I didn't really feel like my life had started, even though I had a job. I got a job right out of college. I bought a house the next year. I, you know, have bought my own car. I I had all of these things that surely show that a person is living their life and being a member of society but for me, it wasn't, it hadn't started yet because I hadn't met somebody to share a life with. I remember my mom always telling me that she married my dad and then she had me when she was 26. And 
I remember thinking when I was growing up how old that was to have a baby, 26. Uh, the joke obviously was on me later, but because um, I didn't have a kid until 32. But I, you know, I, I just assumed that until I was married, I hadn't accomplished everything. And in fact, when I had already been married for, I don't know, six or seven years, I remember thinking, okay, what next? What, what's after this? Because I checked off all the boxes. I did, you know, I graduated high school with honors. I graduated from college. I got a job. I got a house. I got a a husband and I got kids. So now what? So I was having like a midlife crisis at the age of like 35. So what what I struggle with is how I see life in the way that it's supposed to be made up. Because when you grow up in a, a Catholic household where both of my parents come from pretty traditional upbringings, very much like patriarchal, you know, fathers in charge and and the the mother is in charge of raising the children, then there is no space to believe that any other relationship or any other life really makes sense or is appropriate. It's just, this is what you do. And even though my mom worked and so did, um, well, my dad, obviously, my mom actually was more of the breadwinner of the family, if you want to call it that. But I still got the sense that we needed to, we, I needed to live in this family that was a, you know, man and a woman and they marry and they have children and that's what you do. And because I'm an achiever, I wanted to prove to everybody that I could do that. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Did you have any support from anyone? In terms of? Just, you know, you're going through this. And, you know, let's say you're 25 right here. You know, you have these things going on where I assume you're supported in your pursuits of um, education and job and, and all of those things. But there's this emotional side to you of these things that are not being care took. Is that the right word? There's no caretaking going on, it seems, in these other aspects from any member of your family. And I don't know if you're reaching out to other people during this time or you're just kind of suffering alone in the sense of like not feeling good enough, not getting help, not reaching out to friends to discuss how you're actually feeling. Like these things are being bottled up possibly for two decades. Yes, is the short answer. Uh, I did... I was seeing a therapist at this point uh, and talking with him, but the way that I had to go about talking to this therapist, um, 
I had to get an appointment together and it was, I was early twenties, I remember. And my mom was harping on me, please, you know, give this person a call. You have to get into this therapist. You have to do this. You have to do this. And, and I just, I got so overwhelmed with this uh, feeling of being back in the home, like that I'm this child still that has to be told what to do. And so it took a little bit longer for me to get over the hump of calling and getting into therapy because I was being told to do it because she didn't maybe necessarily want to talk to me about everything because it's not something she's familiar with. I'm going to make an assumption here and you tell me if I'm right or wrong. Okay. Is is it fair to say that most likely you'll have communication issues or difficulty discussing things? And also, I guess, combined with that, uh, an overlap is trust. Yes. Okay. Definitely. Okay. Yeah. Trust in yourself and others in fear of if you do say something or try to communicate the reality of what's going on, that you will be seen as not good enough. So it's better for you to just maybe not say anything at all. Exactly. I have two speeds. I either have, you don't hear anything or you hear everything and it feels like it's too much and I'm just verbally vomiting all over you. So from here, we're going to go from verbally vomiting to meeting the abuser for the first time. Uh, take us through this first meeting. All right. So um, I was late 20s and I had two uncles who passed within a month of each other. And so their funerals ended up uh, a week apart, just back to back. And since I'm from about six hours away from where I live now, I had gone to my first uncle's funeral and then I had come back. And the next day, my mom called me to tell me that my second uncle had passed. And it was a very short, brief surprise kind of thing. So I wasn't sure I was going to be able to make it to the funeral because I had done so much traveling. I was behind at work. So my cousin said, my cousin called me, says, I'm going to pick you up. We're going to go you don't have to worry about driving. It'll be, it'll be great. So I agreed to go. He picked me up. We drove to, um, back home and we decided when we got there that we were going to go out that night and we did. So this is very atypical that in the middle of the school year, cause I'm a teacher that I would go home to visit or to, to be out at all. And we went to this bar and I was, I don't know, I think we were getting ready to leave. And I came running down the stairs and I noticed that my cousin was talking with this guy and I noticed him. I thought he was really cute and uh, immediately was hoping that we, that I could talk to him and that maybe, you know, we could see if he was single and all of that. And I had found out that he had just, this is, this is my ex, and he had just gotten back from a trip, a three-week trip over the road. He was a truck driver. So it felt really kind of fateful that I was in town, which I almost never am at this point. He had just gotten back for, from a three-week trip, and just, we both were at this right place at this right time. We talked, instant attraction, 
we, you know, he was smart. He was good at telling stories. He had a nice smile, all of the things. And then he asked if I would go out on a date with him the next night. Uh, and he picked me up and because I um, had been doing a lot of crying from the funeral and I didn't feel comfortable driving. So he picked me up. We went out and had a great conversation. And it was it was great. We had a really nice kiss in the parking lot. He actually ended up um, getting pulled over on the way way home and as we're sitting there and I'm having a hard I'm just full of anxiety and you know as a truck driver he can't uh, get any tickets so we were both very nervous uh, but he was so calm and comfortable with the police officer and just really I wasn't seeing any red flags at the point at that point he was just a really relaxed guy so he started calling. Um, he had no text, no text plan on his phone. So he added, well, his mom added that because he's, he's on his parents' plan. He still to this day is on his parents' plan. And so he added these, you know, the text messages so that he could text with me. And we started talking more frequently uh, he pursued me, but with caution, it wasn't a, an immediate, he wanted to come down and see me all the time because again, I'm six hours away and he still had to work. Uh, but he did, he did talk to me regularly. He was very nice and funny verbally. He was effusive telling me things like, of course it would be worth it to drive. 12 hours round trip to see you for a day or a weekend. Like, of course, I want to spend as much time with you. So he seemed like a solution. He's this person who's age appropriate. He's single. He's smart. Uh, we have a lot of shared interests. We like Lord of the Rings. We like to, you know, drink microbrews. We we love to eat food and watch movies. And we also, um, this is so weird, uh, but he knew who the transcendentalists were. And that was really exciting to me that somebody would be familiar with, you know, a movement of of literature that I was interested in. So it was exciting that this smart, attractive, single available person was interested in pursuing a relationship with me. And he was vouched for because oh, of your cousin. Yes. Right. He was my friend. It, it was he was a friend of my cousin. So obviously he is safe. He's safe and this person has chosen you. And this person is now showing you, you know, one he's vouched for family member of yours is the one that is the vouching does the vouching here he seems to be on the same same wavelength as you so this is like i am good enough someone finds me to be worthy and on their level and likes the same things as me you know that has to be a good feeling that they're just not accepting of me of all of these other things, but they like the same thing as me. 
you know, that has to feel good. And, you know, at this point, I assume you're kind of hook, line and sinker. You know, this is the person for me going forward. Exactly. It was like, as I, as I said earlier, it just seemed like this really strange twist of fate that we were both in the same place at the same time, both, you know, emotionally, socially and geographically. And then all of a sudden, you know, we have all these shared interests and we enjoy spending time together. And oh my gosh, this is probably, this is what people talk about, right? Is that they find their person and when they're not looking for them. And I did, I, I found my person. I had just given up and said, well, Maybe I won't meet anybody. And then there he just appears out of nowhere. So tell us what the beginning of your relationship was like. So um, we started dating seriously. Um, I would only see him infrequently, uh, every couple of weeks or every three weeks. And when he was there, I really liked playing house. You know, I had a person that I really liked spending time with that I loved. I could do laundry for him and I could cook us meals and I could, you know, clean up. And it was just, it was, it was great. It was just what I had wanted. And we started, you know, kind of getting into some of our traumas from the past. Like I shared about my ex who was abusive and, and uh, I found about some of his trauma from his past, which um, in hindsight is just a bunch of red flags. He talked very negatively about his ex-girlfriends. He talked about how his girlfriends were abusive to him or that they were, they were just the one, the one he told me physically abused him, hit him with lamps and flashlights and things. And of course, now I wonder what exactly, um, his role in all of that was and whether he um, not prompted it, but whether that was reactive abuse on her part. But um, there were other red flags um, that I, it's not that I ignored. I just, I'm not sure that anybody really teaches anyone else about red flags, or at least they didn't when I was growing up and dating. Um, He, uh, I, I just, you know, I remember him saying something offhanded to me to the effect of, you know, if it weren't for me, you'd end up an old maid. Nobody would marry you if it weren't for me. And you're so lucky. Uh, and he would talk about, he would go to like the tractor supply and the girls there would just fawn all over him because he's, he's so handsome. Um, but then he also would, do he would have these moments where he would get irrationally angry i guess irrational to my way of thinking but this one time we were driving we were on a a trip a vacation and we were driving up north and somebody cut him off which happens regularly when you're driving anywhere and he started um getting very angry swearing through the the window at this person and then started reaching under his seat, his car, like the seat of his car to grab his tire iron and acted like he was going to get out of the car and, you know, with his tire iron and I don't know, hurt this other driver. And I was so terrified because I've never been around anybody like that. 
I've never had anybody get so angry about something that a stranger did that they would threaten to, you know, beat them. And he, I said, I think I'm going to call the police because in my mind, the police are there as like the safety measure. And he started yelling at me and swearing at me that I should never, ever call the police, especially not on him. And that I am a part of his family and I should never talk to the police and I should never allow them to get involved in our business. And if they ever show up to the house, then I shouldn't let them in. We weren't living together at the time. We weren't even engaged, but I should never let them in. I should never allow the police to get involved at all. That was terrifying, but I'm in my late 20s. What if I want to have kids? Can I have kids if this person who I thought was going to be this, you know, the answer to my, to my, um, you know, problems doesn't work out. What happens next? I am going to end up an old maid. I am going to end up without kids, which is something, you know, that I really wanted. So, um, he was incessantly talking politics, uh, which in my mind is not something that would be a deal breaker because I, you know, I think it's important to have healthy dialogue in, in relationships. I think it's important to be able to share your perspective and have, you know, conversations and debates and disagreements, but there was not any of that with him. It was always, this is how you should feel. And if you don't, I'm going to tell you why you're wrong. And so there was a constant stream of, of ideas uh, from his perspective. And there was a, a moment on this, this same vacation where he, um, was very angry at the the fellow motorist where I was saying, I'm really finished talking about politics. If you could just, um, if you could just cease for tonight, we can talk about something else. We can watch a movie. We could do something else. And he couldn't, it was as if he couldn't stop his mouth from forming the words and he just had to get them out. And nothing I said or did could stop this stream of consciousness uh, monologue. Um, and this was just one of the first times that I noticed that he, of course, this is noticing in hindsight, but he doesn't have respect for me enough to stop when I asked him. He wasn't respecting my request or my boundary or my, you know, what I'm asking him to do or to not do. Um, so that was, um, that was another, just while we were dating red flags, but I wanted to have kids. So, okay. And then his, his parents started saying things like, oh, thanks for taking him on. We're so glad that somebody is, is taking this responsibility on. Uh, and later I found out that that was a completely accurate description because he was getting all of his duties, chores, obligations completed by his mom. She was doing his laundry. He lived with them at the time. And 
she did all of his banking. She did all of his planning. I found out that the first time he came down to visit me, she actually booked the hotel for him because he wasn't, um, he wanted to come and visit and stay in a hotel, but he didn't know how to, how to do that. So she had to do it for him. This was in 2009. So the internet was up and running just fine. Uh, but mom had to take care of that for him. Um, he just was this person who was flawed, but, um, you know, everybody's flawed. And, uh, I, I thought maybe I just didn't understand. I didn't, I felt like I didn't know anything about relationships, about marriage, about how you find your partner. So my parents met on a blind date. This was not that. So I didn't know if that was, um, if this was normal, essentially. So eventually you do get married. So walk us through this. So I had this really weird feeling when I was getting married. I, the whole time leading up to the wedding, I just felt like it was going to fall apart at the last minute. I'm not really sure why, considering there were no big fights. Everything was smooth sailing when we were together. Um, I mean, I didn't really like spending extended periods of time with him. <laughs> I mean, if we were both on vacation and just spending, you know, all of this time together, I just wasn't sure. There was no excitement about our discussions. We would just kind of sit around and watch a movie. It wasn't really a, you know, a dynamic time together. Uh, and then we get to the wedding and that day I, I'm, I'm ready to walk down the aisle. My dad's there and I start to walk and this, I just get completely choked up and start I don't know, feeling like I was going to cry, but I also felt like that aisle was a gauntlet that I had to tra traverse to get to the next part of my life, which I understand that's, you know, kind of the whole symbolism of the, of the aisle, but it was more than that. Like I, my body was almost, um, physically responding. Like I was having this visceral reaction to the fact that I was walking down this legitimate um gauntlet this aisle and so we got married we went on our little mini honeymoon because um i had to work and he had to work and he went off back home to you know where he was living with his parents and i went home to my house because he was still he still had a job in um in our hometown and i still had a job in you know where i had been for the the past whatever, you know, six or seven years. And so we were still long distance. And so it was really easy when, you know, you have these little honeymoon moments of, you know, I don't see you for two weeks. And then we're so excited for this weekend and we get to spend all this time together. And then it's, and then it's over. It's really hard to get into the, the drudgery of life and all the crappy stuff that happens on a regular basis when you're only seeing them for 48 hours or less. So um, he had started a little bit with some of the um, negative things, saying negative things to me, but not so much that I would have 
um, noticed or, or called off the wedding or anything like that. Uh, he found ways to present criticism to me in this nice little neat package where part of it was 100% true, so I couldn't disagree with it. But then on the back end, of course, was the little criticism. So he'd be like, oh my gosh, thanks for doing the laundry. But, you know, it feels a little tight. I don't know. Maybe you should think about the way, you know, how, how long you run the, the dryer or which cycle you're using. And I had to agree because the laundry did seem a little tight. So how could I disagree with that? But it was also just this little cut, just a little one. And then it was, oh, yeah, 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 I love dinner, but I'm not really a fan of fill in the blank, whatever it was. It didn't, it was something different for each meal. Um, or like, don't you think the dog should be walked more often? He really enjoys it when you go out and, and walk with him. Or, um, oh, you should learn how to can vegetables. And then cut to me canning like 25 jars of green beans and learning how to can, you know, French onion soup and all of this, you know, these ridiculous tasks that as an achiever, as somebody who loves to learn, I'm like, yeah, I can learn something new. This is great. But really what it is, is him giving me as we're going on kind of these tasks to do and these jobs. And, you know, I, yes, I love to learn. So why not? do something else that costs me a lot of my time. So here you have someone who connects with you on this level where at first you guys are equals mm -hmm. and now things are kind of moving away from that. There are a bunch of red flags in hindsight, uh, but now he's not doing anything inside the household. Correct. And he's complaining about everything that you're doing inside the household, which has to be very frustrating in Correct. the sense of you're, you're, you know, you're, you're doing it all. And then he's complaining, well, you know, you do it, but he's not doing that. And now he's adding things, mentioning those things, you know, you're just trying to make everything go smoothly and you want that person to be happy. So you start adding these things. Now, all of a sudden you're not just doing everything in the home. Now extracurriculars are being done by you as well and this person is benefiting from all of this so there's control that's already taken place here and you know he is also i assume you know dominating conversation in the sense of like political conversation whatever and you have to agree or go along with whatever is being said is my assumption and that his word is the truth and the establishment here has already happened of you know his word is the truth and control has has really set in at this point exactly and it would he would control what i was allowed to talk about so if i came home and i was upset about something that happened at school he would say something like, oh, you teachers, you bitch way too much. And you're just so upset about everything. Why do you always have to complain? I don't want to hear about school anymore. Not at all. No more talking about school. And so at the, at, 
you know, by the end of the relationship, I was essentially allowed to talk about a few things, which were politics, but not mine, and beer brewing or whatever interest he was involved in at that time, and the kids. But not everything about the kids, just whatever he wanted to talk about. So it was definitely a slow march to the tightness of control that um, kind of hit a, a frenzy at the end of our relationship. But definitely at the beginning, he was setting the stage for me believing that his truth was the only truth and that his way was the only way. And this was a slow escalation and there seemed to be uh, set times when inclines of this escalation would happen. Right. And, you know, the first incline is what you're dealing with now, where your competency is also being chipped away at. You know, nothing you're, you're doing is ever good enough. And then the, the next incline of what we discussed before we got on this call was, you know, when you have your, your baby um, and, and the pregnancy of that, which is three and a half years down the road. So what happens from here? Yeah, so um, I had uh, wanted to have a, a kid. I was going through this process of becoming a National Board Certified Teacher right before, and I wanted to make sure to kind of get that out of the way because uh, that was something that I could achieve. <laughs> And I could have this kind of distinction. And as I finished that up, I got pregnant and um, it was about three and a half years into the marriage. So, you know, for me, there are right ways. This is according to my upbringing. There are right ways of doing things and there are wrong ways of doing things according to my upbringing. And so, you know, you don't have a baby immediately. You have to, you know, bond with your partner and get to know them and, and everything. And so I was thinking, this is perfect. I got married at the at an appropriate time. And then we had some time together and then we're going to have babies and everything is done exactly as it should be. And when we had the baby, my daughter, it was fine. Everything felt fine, except for that um, he was very um, angry in the hospital, just in general. I had to have a C-section with my first because of various reasons. And he just was getting extremely angry and agitated while we were there because he just wanted to leave and to go home. But I had just had my first kid and I was a little concerned about going home and and being able to take care of myself from this surgery and this baby, but he just wanted to leave. And we got home at about, I would say 3.30 or 4 uh, that day. It was a Monday and um, he went to work an hour later and left me alone with the baby in my C-section scar and whatever. And that was just what I could come to expect from his um, priorities. It was that it was my responsibility. He had told me early in our dating time before we got engaged that he didn't want any kids, but he said he wouldn't stop me from having them. So in my head, uh, I was thinking, oh, uh, well, <laughs> that doesn't sound great, but I want 
a kid and he said he's not going to stop. And I bet he'll just fall in love with the kids once they come here. That was not how it went. He just didn't really spend any time um, taking care of, of the kid. Uh, yes, he had a he put on a good act in the hospital, changed diapers and and the whole nine for the nurses to see. But when we got home, it was all my responsibility. I did all of the feedings. I did all of the diapers. I did every single night wake up. I did everything. And that's in addition to having to prepare meals and keep the house clean. And then, you know, his mom came and she's so wonderful. And she taught me, you know, how to give the baby a bath and all of these things. Um, And it just was understood, I guess, that that was my responsibility, not his, and that he, he didn't need to learn how to give the baby a bath because that isn't something that he would have to do. So um, it was around this time that, um, you know, he started kind of being more obvious with the digs. Nothing was good enough. My cleaning wasn't good enough. My parenting wasn't good enough. Like, oh, just let her cry it out or whatever the case may be. You know, sit down and have dinner. You don't have to hold that baby all the time or whatever. And it was also this time around this time that the, that, I felt like um, I was being expected to perform certain, uh, as he would call them, wifely duties uh, for him. So uh, when I was on pelvic rest in the early beginning of the pregnancy with my first, um, because I had a little placenta previa, I was on pelvic rest, but I, he did not accept that as a reason why he shouldn't still be, um, you know, taken care of or, or what have you. And then after I had the baby, um, I wasn't allowed to, you know, like wait the six weeks. Um, he wanted to, to, you know, to have sex as, as soon as possible. And he, you know, told me that if I don't, then he will find somebody who will, you know, that's something that he needs. Um, But in addition to all of this expectation, uh, he would do these really weird things where he would triangulate me with his exes with regard to sex. And he wouldn't just do it in, I don't know, normal average conversation. He would actually bring up activities, I guess, of his exes with me while I'm having sex with him. So he would be talking about, you know, like how wild this one was and she was amazing and she was so incredible. And then this one was, you know, she wanted it all the time and, you know, she would want it two, three times a day. Sometimes I would wake up in the middle of the night and she would be having sex with me you know, suggesting, of course, that I wasn't doing my job or my duty or that I wasn't as good as they were. And so it was always this, I, you know, I wanted to be a worthy partner. I'm an achiever. I want to show that I'm the one who, you know, deserved to have him. So I didn't feel like I could say no. I didn't feel like I could, um, you know, say I'm not ready physically to engage in this, you know, act. And how many times did I like have to tend to the baby and then 
you know, come right back and, and, and keep, keep going with this, you know, the sexual intimacy that I wasn't emotionally or physically up for, but it didn't matter because that is, you know, his right as a, as a man and as a husband and as somebody who gave me the baby that I wanted. So, um, Around eight, nine months into the having our first kid, we uh, bought a house. It was a foreclosure. So he expected me to help him with the refinishing of the house. It was, um, in some ways, it was perfectly fine. And we moved in just a month or two after we bought it. But in other ways, it needed a lot of work that would involve a lot of uh, physical labor. At this point... Um, when he's finishing the upstairs and doing some work with the closets, uh, I'm about eight months pregnant with my second, and he would do things like ask me to carry these gigantic pieces of drywall up like three flights of stairs because he wanted to get that accomplished. I kept saying, I'm not physically capable. I'm going to fall. I'm going to, the baby's going to be hurt, but it didn't matter because he did not want to ask anybody for help. It was just my responsibility. There have been times over this whole relationship where I've had to, you know, lift things that I shouldn't have been lifting, whether I was pregnant or not. I've had to, um, Oh, this one time he wanted me to help him get this machine upstairs. And if he had slipped, I would for sure have been dead because the machine was so large and cumbersome and it didn't matter to him because that's my responsibility as a, as a spouse or a partner Well, to do whatever it is that he needed to have done. He also was doing a lot of work at inappropriate times of the day for my for my daughter who was trying to sleep, she was either napping or she was going to bed. And here he is getting the, I don't know, some kind of nail gun out and, you know, making all of this noise. And I kept saying, stop interrupting her nap time. And he didn't have any interest in, in going around my schedule. Everything was around his schedule and what he wanted to do and when he wanted to do it. So when my second came, it was an even greater impact on my um, my ability to function because I had already get, been getting so tired and overwhelmed with all of the expectations uh, of you know what I had to do around the house and what I had to do for him and for the baby, and uh, it was just this huge steep increase of um, manipulation and expectation. I didn't have any control over the names of the kids. It had to be someone in his family and, you know, it had to be his choice for first and, and middle names. Um, with my second, he did have two weeks paternity leave, unlike, you know, having to go back immediately after the first, but he didn't spend any of that time helping me. He just decided to spend it doing things around the house. I took on both kids. I, um, two months into my second being alive in the world, I decided to potty train my first. And the whole time I spent potty training her, he just kept undermining me, 
you know, oh, she's not ready. She doesn't, you know, she, she doesn't need to get potty trained right now. And she, do you see that? She just peed all over the floor. There's no way that she's ready. And so he's undermining nap schedules, sleeping schedules, now potty training. And every time I think I get a handle of, on things, he needs something more or he needs something different or, uh, you know, like, let's go, let's go shopping as a family because he can look like this all-American dad that it has this family together, the, the tiny little kids who are adorable and we're all going shopping as a family. But he didn't think about the fact that that would occur during nap time or that I would have to leave the the store halfway through to go out in the parking lot to nurse the kid because it was too long after his last feed or whatever the the case would be. Um, this is also the time where he started openly and heavily insulting. It wasn't truth telling anymore. It was this place is a shithole, and you know, no, I don't. I don't want you to do that. Or I didn't, I didn't want you to, to make that dinner. So at this point, you know, there's a big fear, obligation, guilt, fog going on that you're living in him, you know, undermining schedules. He does not understand, or he does understand that once you're disrupting sleep schedules and all these things for kids, that puts a lot of extra pressure on you because, you know, there are certain times where you're able to get rest and, and have your schedule work out. And now there's complete chaos, which then wreaks havoc on their life and then wreak ha wreaks havoc on, on your life in a more extreme way as you're dealing with kids who shouldn't be up when they are. You know, it's just complete chaos that, that is that is going on. Exactly. You know, you're dealing with someone here that is not taking responsibility for themselves. They're very entitled. We've already heard, you know, his mom does a lot for him before, you know, you met him. Mm -hmm. And you're dealing with someone who doesn't like the word no. Um, right. So now you have two kids. You're dealing with all of this. You're obviously tired and you're exhausted. What are the other feelings that are that are going on as, uh, you know, you, you notice here that he just wants the facade of looking like a good dad and, and you've seen, you know, that he's really not, it's not 50-50 here and in any sort of way, not just responsibility, but in um, evenness on how you think and uh, everything, everything is being undermined of who you are. And your identity is being chipped away at. Your sense of self is being chipped away at. So what are your feelings surrounding him and everything that's gone on at this point? I am definitely starting to see that he is saying cruel things to me and that maybe not everything he says is truthful. I... I have these two identities. I have my work self who is uber competent and she knows how to teach and she knows how to do what she needs to do. And she's, you know, everybody looks to her to, for answers, 
And then I go home and all of a sudden I'm nothing. I am not capable or competent. I can't keep a house clean. I can't raise kids. I can't cook a meal that's appetizing. I haven't made dessert in three weeks. Uh, So it's very confusing to have these conflicting identities that are so polarized from each other because I am still the same person. And yet he has been introducing me to this whole other version of myself that I didn't realize existed because it didn't. And yeah, I, I just thought that maybe this is what they mean when they say marriage is hard. I feel like people have just a few words of advice for people who are going to get married and it's, you know, never go to bed angry or whatever the case may be. But, but the big thing is that marriage, they say marriage is hard and it takes work. Well, what if this is the work? What if the work is that I have to just try harder or satisfy him by, you know, getting this dessert going so that he can have something nice at the end of the day? Because, you know, he's working 12-hour shifts, and that's hard, sure. And it doesn't occur to me that I'm also working really hard and also getting very um, tired more and more. This is around the time where uh, I feel like I'm in this sludge. And this started around... Uh, the you know the second child's when he was born and then never lifted it was like I was trudging around in um I was like artex in the never-ending story like just getting sucked in by this you know pit of of mud and and muck and I I couldn't get out of it because he wouldn't let me because I wasn't doing all the things that he wanted to. Or if I did do something that he wanted me to, he would need something more. It was around this time also that we started adapting all these animals. We had already had two dogs. Uh, and then he decided we needed chickens. So we all of a sudden had 50 baby chicks in our barn. And then he adopted these goats from his uncle. And then his mom and dad, um, they, without our approval, bought a miniature horse for my two-year-old. I mean, what two-year-old doesn't need livestock, you know, as a gift? And then he wanted, you know, to get cattle and he wanted to get sheep. And then it was, well, you won't let me get this fencing because it's too expensive. So we can't have what I want. And we have this great property, but I can't use it because you don't let me. So everything ended up being my fault or my, either my responsibility or my fault that it wasn't working out for him. So I just tried harder. You know, do I put on a a happier face, you know, so that he doesn't say that I'm, I'm miserable or do I you know, try to make that meal that he wants because he's been talking about this meal for that his mom made forever and I'll just try it out. But then when I make it, he's like, "Mm, 
isn't supposed to look like that. It tasted fine, but it's just not supposed to look like that. So every time I thought I was going to, you know, make it or make him happy, he moved the goalpost and I wasn't meeting the, you know, the, the, the goal. So, um, at some point, uh, we were, we were fighting, but everything was okay. And then, um, you know, we were, I was getting over it and I just kind of took on the responsibility of the, of the fights. Then it was Christmas of probably 2018 and we were going tree shopping and we couldn't just go for a Christmas tree like a normal family. We had to do research on where the cheapest trees would be. So we went to no fewer than four different places that had Christmas trees for sale. And I didn't like any of them because they were all orange or lopsided or something. And so I said, I just want to go get a tree. And he said, I will pick one up at the tractor supply on the way home. And so we started this big fight. And that was the first time that the word divorce got thrown out. Um, so this is right before my um, my youngest was about two. And after that, after that, you know, we talked a little bit about divorce and we were both very angry. He really shaped up and got things together and things really kind of settled for a while. I didn't hear as much of the insults. He was, uh, I wouldn't say more active in the home for like doing chores and whatnot, but at least we weren't fighting as much. And by the time it was the next, um, the next Thanksgiving time, I I thought I was ready to have another kid because I I kept thinking that there would be somebody else coming, this another baby coming. So we were going to have another kid and what do you know first um the first time that you know we try and I get pregnant immediately and then 3 months after I got pregnant uh it was covid and pan- the you know shut down and and quarantine and while I was like super psyched about having this baby um my responsibilities at home just seemed to get bigger and bigger he went back to work uh or he was working already but he went back to school to get this other certificate And he would be learning from home and he would just go into the room where his computer was, shut the door, and he would be in there all day, just either Zooming with his teacher or doing his work. Meanwhile, I'm working full time. I have a, had a three-year-old and a five-year-old. The five-year-old was in preschool. And so she had some Zoom meetings of her own. Then I was teaching from home and I had to figure out how to teach, be professional, and take care of a three and a five year old without defaulting to screens. I mean, I guess I could have, but it was important to me that they were not just sat in front of the TV so that they, you know, kept growing and learning. And I couldn't let their, you know, growth be inhibited by the fact that I couldn't 
pay all of the attention to them. But he had nothing to do with that. In fact, a few times he came out um, of his room to to complain about the noise that they were making or the noise that I was making while I was teaching. And um, and then we find kittens and a cat on the property. And all of a sudden we have even more animals to take care of. I have to find um, places for the kittens to go. And then he starts giving me more responsibilities. Uh, like, for example, he wants to sell something on Facebook. And so he's going to list it. Um, but he's not going to list it. I'm going to list it. I have to do all the communicating with the people. And I have to set up the time. And, the, and then when he's going to sell the thing, I have to uh, be the person to text them, even though I'm not physically there to meet them to sell the, the, whatever it was, it's, it just was more and more responsibility as, you know, as the days and months went on. Um, he's at this point questioning everything that I'm doing. So it's not so much that he's insulting. It's just, he's constantly asking all these questions to make sure that I'm doing everything I need to do. So for example, um, is this the best meal for the kids? Like you didn't put any vegetables on the plate or my favorite one to complain about is that he would always question how many times a week the kids needed a bath. So I would be running a bath and he would immediately say, why are we doing a bath again? They just had a bath. And I'd say, yeah, three days ago, kids need to be bathed. And he would throw a fit and say, well, okay, but you're, you're going to have to use that bath water when they're done, or I'm going to take a bath when they're done so that, you know, we don't waste this water. And if I wanted to take a shower, he would, as I'm saying, I'm going to take a, sh I'm going to jump in the shower. Can you just watch the kids? Or usually I would have to wait until they were in bed or napping. And each time it was, why are you taking a shower again? Didn't you just take a shower yesterday? No, I took a shower two days ago. Well, I don't think you need to take a shower or I don't know. It's just, it's just not necessary to use all this water. We weren't allowed to flush the toilet every single time because that would be a waste of water. At some point in this time, he started um, using an RO system, a reverse osmosis system for water purification. And that system, um, for every like gallon of water, pure water, you get all five or so gallons of wastewater. And so he would have buckets of water just littered around the house that he would use eventually. So he would use that for bath water and he would, I he would put the water in the tub and then he would heat that same water on the stove and dump it into the bath. So in order to get my kids a bath, we would have to start it at like noon because it would take five hours of heating up the water on the stove and then dumping it into the bathtub for it to be warm enough for them to bathe. And then we'd have to use the buckets of water to flush the toilet. And it was just all this control over these really minor things. And I am not anti you know, earth, <laughs> I appreciate his conservation. And that's, that's the thing is like the motivation is not bad conservation. Yes. Great. Recycling. Yes. Great. 
but when it impacts my ability to live my life in a way that, because it was just exhausting to have to do all of these things and meet all of these expectations because I was working full-time and raising two kids full-time. You know, it was just so much responsibility. Um, so we, so we have the, the third kid, um, my jobs, responsibilities are already at a fever pitch. And then he just would continue to add more. Um, it was still, I was in this moment of, if I just try harder, if I just do a little bit more, he doesn't like, maybe I'll just let him buy the fencing and that way he'll be happy because then, you know, we'll, we'll he'll have that thing and he can distract himself there. Um, meanwhile, everything in the house is just falling into like, not disrepair, but, you know, we had this, um, uh, railing on the front of the house that was like falling apart and actually fell halfway off. So it was a hazard, but it was, he didn't want to have to deal with that. And the barn hadn't been cleaned. And with the chickens, I mean, it was hideously dirty and dusty, but he didn't have the time to clean it out. Um, but he had time to research, uh, whatever it is that he wanted to his beer brewing or his whatever all the time. Um, that was another thing is anytime it was a brew day, I wasn't allowed to use the kitchen because it could interrupt his washing up from the brewing. So anytime I, it was a brew day, I had to plan some kind of meal or activities that didn't involve me using the sink or the kitchen, because if I interrupted things, then um, it would be, he would get very angry and yell and swear and kick things and not people, but kick things around like buckets. Cause we always had 85 buckets just around our the house. Um, it was around this time that I started uh, either like standing up for myself when it came to politics or like when he started to insult my family, he would call them arrogant or he would be really angry with my mom for whatever reason. And I would stand up to him about it and, and disagree. And then he would triangulate me with his mom, you know, like, oh, I'm sorry that you're not as good as, you know, as my mom with the way that she does things. I mean, she was able to you know, do her job, which was running the ER as a nurse and take care of me and clean the house. And my dad never had to lift a finger. I'm sorry that, that it's just too much for you. And that was his favorite refrain when my third came was, it was just too much for you. You know, the third one came and it just became too overwhelming. You were okay with the first two, but once that third one came, man, you just, it was too much. And um, we just would fight over all kinds of things. And he would, this is around the time that he started picking fights with me. And then invariably that night, he would want to have sex. So it was, you know, we would have, it'd be a weekend um, and we would be out doing whatever. He yelled at me once at the grocery store and for not putting the little divider down 
um, at the, at the register. And so we fought the whole way home. We fought at home. And then later that night, he decided that it was, you know, it was a good idea to have sex because it will bring us back closer together. So I think, you know, that was his, you know, well, things aren't going the way I want to. So I'm going to figure out how to, how to make them the way I want to. Um, it was also around this time that he started following me around the house to make sure I heard what he had to say. I was so overwhelmed and busy that I would just have to be constantly moving, you know, from I'm doing the the dishes or I'm doing the meal and then I have to go and do laundry. And he would be, and I'd say, I don't want to talk about this anymore. This is enough. I'm I'm done. But then he would follow me downstairs to continue telling me why, you know, he was right or why, why I had to believe what he wanted me to. He even made me change my political affiliation, telling me that if I would just not be listed as this one, that maybe we won't fight as, as much. Maybe just if you would just, you know, give up this political affiliation, then we'll be fine. And I won't bother you anymore. I won't want to talk anymore about politics. That obviously was, was a lie, but, um, I just thought, okay, fine. You know, I will try. And then maybe, maybe this will work because I still thought in this time that if I just did the right thing, that I could fix it. I could achieve in this relationship because, you know, a relationship is a project just like everybody, everything else. I can, I can do this. I can get an A. So, um, school is starting, uh, for my oldest and it was, um, I was like nine days postpartum with my third and, uh, it was her second day of school and his parents were in town visiting so that, um, they could see the baby and they could, you know, watch my oldest go off to school. So it's day two of the bus. And I'm up at the top of the driveway by the house waiting for his parents so that they can walk down. Uh, and I've got my, all three of the kids, we got the, you know, the stroller out and all this. And I start walking down the, the driveway. We get less than halfway down and the bus just <laughs> flies by our house. Like didn't even pause. And I just stood there like with my mouth open thinking, this is, this is, terrible. I don't know what to do. And of course I knew what to do, you know, drive her to school. But in that moment, I was really shocked. Well, I get back into the house with his parents who witnessed the whole thing. And I was being blamed for missing the bus because I wasn't there early enough. And I said, we were 10 minutes early. That, that was more than early enough to get to the bus. It's just, he came early. That wasn't that wasn't early enough. And I also was waiting for his parents. He did not care that that was part of the story. He just needed somebody to blame. And it was, it was me. Um, so by the next summer, summer of 2021, when my youngest was turning one, I was ready to start thinking about leaving. I started kind of um, looking at rental properties, not physically, just like online. And I was thinking, okay, well, maybe after this happens, like maybe after my youngest birthday, we can 
or I can think about, you know, leaving because, you know, we have this great place for a party. So I don't want to, I don't want to compromise that. And then we have to get my youngest baptized. And I don't want to do it before then because, you know, the Catholic church isn't going to allow me to baptize this kid without a, a, a father present. Um, and then it was after this and then it was after that. And it was just, I just kept putting it off. Um, the summer of 2022, I actually started looking physically at rental properties in the area to see what I could find. And then, um, in the fall of which I didn't, I didn't take any of them, but I did, I did look pretty seriously. And then in the fall of 2022, um, I, I had already told him that I didn't think that, it was going to work out that I didn't, I wasn't sure that I really wanted to, to do this anymore. It felt too bad. It was too hard. And we had had multiple conversations. This is when the threats start happening. It was a lot of, um, well, if you want a divorce, then I'm just going to pick up and leave and the kids will never see me again. And that was of course a huge you know, like threat to me because I want them to have a dad. I want them to be, you know, a part of a family, even if that family is separated or divorced, I still wanted them to have that person in their life. And then it, you know, all of the threats escalated in any case in the fall, uh, I had this student in my class who was the youngest of three. I had all three of them in some capacity. So I was really close with the family and this kid came in and he was having a really hard day. And all of a sudden he just burst into tears in the middle of my classroom. And I had, you know, his friend was there trying to comfort him. I emailed his mom right away. I didn't know what was going on. I got him set up with the school psychologist so that he could talk. And it turns out, uh, this poor kid who's you know 17 years old a month away from 18 he was trying to break up a fight between his dad and his older brother and his dad looked at him and basically just punched him in the face the 17 year old and i looked at him and thought okay so this is my third kid they even look similar and in you know 15 years, do I want for, you know, who is now, you know, my soon to be ex to be treating my youngest like this, because whatever he says or does, doesn't line up with what my ex, you know, thought or believed. If he doesn't respect me as a person, as an adult, when it comes to what I want to talk about or what I believe, there's no way they're that he's going to believe or agree with his children who grow up. Um, since we since we started um, thinking about children, he has been very vocal about the fact that he will not accept people who engage in relationships that are not heterosexual in his house, as if he's going to just kick them out if they if they are. I don't know. Just anything other than what he expects, um, which is just a, you know, cisgendered, you know, cissexual, all of that. He just is, is, uh, very bigoted. So when that student, when I heard about what had happened to the student, 
I thought that I can't do this anymore and I can't subject my kids to this threat in their lives. And I also can't let them see the way that he treats me and talks to me and interacts with me and let them believe that that's appropriate or respectful or how they should treat people. Because I want above all for my kids to be kind and good human beings. And he's not. So I, later that week, I went to a lawyer and um, engaged the lawyer. And a week after that, my lawyer's paralegal mailed a letter home with the letterhead. Uh, So he essentially found out way before I was ready for him to that um, I was consulting somebody about divorce. Um, And so that kind of quickly escalated things where they wouldn't have normally. Um, But at the same time, I'm still really deep in all this sludge. Like I can't, I'm taking naps every single weekend day. I'm going to bed at eight or nine. I'm like having a hard time staying awake uh, because I'm just so overwhelmed with all my responsibilities and my job and all of this emotional turmoil. So I just it, am so different from who I remember myself to be. I just wonder where all of my interests went and where all of because I don't have the energy to do any of them. At some point, um, I read this book called um, If He's So Great, Why Do I Feel So Bad? Um, which is a little on the nose, if you ask me, but it was really helpful. And right after I read that book, which essentially helped open my eyes to maybe I am being abused, not not like physically abused, but that didn't mean it wasn't abuse. And so on the heels of that book, I listened to and then quickly bought Lundy Bancroft's book. Why does he do that? And I just devoured it because I saw so much of what was going on in my life in his book. And it was like revelation after revelation after revelation that, oh my gosh, I am being abused. Because for months I had been driving to school and turning at this corner where there was this billboard from the YW and it said it just said you're stronger than you think and then in the corner is like something about domestic violence and I just kept thinking to myself every time I saw that billboard why are you know people are being beaten and tortured and and you know treated like garbage why are they stronger than you are like you can't get out of this relationship you're so weak and you know, you're not even being abused. And then, you know, here come these books saying, yeah, you are. I, you are being abused. This is, you know, I mean, there's no comparing all of them. They're all terrible. They're all awful. They all make us, you know, less of who we are. And I can be stronger than I, than I thought. Um, so what I think was most important in 
my ability to start moving forward in in separating myself from him was the fact that I had that whole other identity of my school self where I had friends and I had supportive colleagues and I had this whole support system and my parents, I still had my parents, you know, they still were supporting me. They knew everything that was going on. And despite the fact that, you know, my entire family is Catholic um, and, you know, there really isn't a lot of divorce in my family. My mom and dad have been so uber supportive of like, you know, we are here for you, whatever you need. If you need money, you need a place to stay, you need whatever. It's just been a hundred percent support this whole time. And without all of that, I'm not sure that it would have been something that I could have managed quickly, I guess, as I did, because there was still, you know, even though, even though I kind of moved steadily forward, he still tried with all kinds of hoovering. Like, you know, when I said the first time I'm unhappy, I don't want to be married anymore. He said, well, give me a chance and let me, let me prove that, that I'm good. I can be better. And he was great for like a month and a half, but he was still, you know, steamrolling me in the discussions. And he was still telling me what I needed to believe. And you know, we went on a, like an anniversary trip because he thought that, that we could rekindle things on this anniversary trip. And this was right before I went to the lawyer and the whole time he didn't want to have to listen to anything I had to say about the history of the place that we were at or the people that were involved in these historical events, because what do I know about things? So, um, I, I have the support system, so I'm able to talk to people about it. I had um, a lot of friends who were open and willing and also kind of happy to talk to me about it because I hadn't been able to go out with them, because I hadn't been able to talk to them as much as I wanted, because I wasn't able to spend any time outside the house, because that would mean that he'd be responsible for the children. So they were um, really, really supportive. And so I started looking seriously for places to rent. And that's when um, the threats got kind of more and more um, aggressive, I guess. So it wasn't instead of, um, you know, well, if you want a divorce, then I'm just going to leave. Then it was, if you want a divorce, I will pick up and leave and I will find a place where I don't have to pay child support. And you will have to do this all on your own. And then it was when he was actually served with papers, the threats went to, if you want to continue with this divorce, I will burn this house to the ground. Or if you want, you know, you think I'm here fixing up the house while you're gone, you'll come home one day and the entire front of the house will be off and you won't have any place to live. And so on and so forth as we're as we're kind of, you know, getting closer and closer. Oh, uh, if you want to get this divorce, I will bankrupt us both. I will never give in. I will fight with you in court for 10 years. If that means that, you know, whatever that, that he wins what he wants to win, or he gets, you know, 50, 50 custody or what have you. So it's been, you know, since since he's been served, 
Um, he was served in January. I still had to live in the house until April. And the whole time it was fighting. It was, you know, he would refuse. He's told me he refused to leave the marital bed. So I had to move out into another room and I was still responsible for all of the children's stuff, getting them ready for school, bringing the youngest to the babysitter, um, picking them up after school. If they stayed at the after school program, he essentially was, and at this point he wasn't working. He had been off since July to do jobs around the house, but he kept getting stuck and not being able to do those jobs because of, you know, whatever excuse he had at the moment. So um, it was at that time in January after he got served that his lawyer advised him to start keeping the youngest home from the babysitter so he could prove that he was an involved father. But he had been home for seven months and only, you know, a couple of times did he keep the youngest because of illness. He was not a participant, but his lawyers clearly giving him, you know, instructions so that when the time came, he could prove that he was involved. So, um, you know, after I moved out with the kids in April, he filed for 50-50 custody. Now, this is the person who when I said I wanted children said he didn't want to have children, but wouldn't stop me from having them. And now because I have taken something from him that he held on to dearly because it, it was a good image. Now he wants custody of the children and he immediately, I mean, it was filed the very next day. I moved out the 22nd and it was filed the 23rd or something like that. And so he was ready. He knew what was coming. His lawyer knew what was coming. And so the first thing that his lawyer said in our first court appearance was that he was arguing that, you know, his client was just as much a primary caregiver as as the defendant as I was and I mean I don't know if he just if his lawyer just took his word at everything or if he honestly truthfully thought that um you know lying was was the best um strategy I, I don't know but it was it was stunning to me that I could be in court with this person who had not given any of my children a bath from beginning to end until January of this year. And he was trying to say that he was just as much a caregiver as, as I was. And it was just stunning to me like that, that, that was, you know, his, his not defense, but like his argument. And I was reminded of the fact that you know, growing up, this person, this man, my ex was the golden child of his family. You know, his older brother and sister took care of him and treated him like an angel. His mom and his dad treated him like this, you know, they, they treated him with such, you know, reverence and, and elevated him. And now I'm not even sure he thinks that there's anything wrong with 
with the way that he was interacting with the children or not interacting with the children. And that since it was just my job to do all of these things that, you know, now he's just going to step into the role of, you know, 50, 50 custodial parents and, and everything's going to be fine. Um, so he's been, uh, he's been trying to get this, um, this custody, but our schedule is, is weird. It, it flip-flops every other week. And we have a two, two, three, which I argued, you know, is, is not good for young children, three, six, and eight. That's, it's not good for them. They're having a really hard time with the transitions. Um, there's a lot of crying. There are a lot of meltdowns more so than what I'm used to. Um, they often kind of lament that they have to go with him or when they get to me, they just are on top of me for an hour or two. If I sit down, they are, it's like they're drawn to me like magnets because I don't think that he touches them while they're at his house. I mean, I've never been worried about physical abuse. That's not an issue at all. I just don't think he physically, you know, gives them a hug or a high five or anything. I think they just are left to their own devices when they're at his house. And when they get to me, they just need to like one let off all the steam that's been building because they can't be themselves there. They're not allowed to cry there. And they, you know, everything is in, is an emergency. Like we have to leave now and, and get things together and, and hurry up, hurry up, hurry up. And then they don't get physical touch or, or any kind of like comfort while they're there. So it's a huge transition. The first, you know, night that they're with me or even sometimes the next day. So that's been really hard to see, but you know, his opinion is that they're thriving because when they're with him, they're not crying and they're not having meltdowns because they're not allowed to. So, um, we're still, um, kind of in the middle of things the we had um some interviews with the judge and the lawyers for the kids they did fantastic but you know my lawyer told me that there's just nothing that we can hang our hat on there's absolutely nothing that says that he shouldn't have 50-50 custody of them um because you know courts aren't able to recognize emotional abuse there's no way to prove it. And also it's not seen as, as a, a threat because, you know, they're not going to have any broken bones or bruises or, or anything. You can't die from emotional abuse or at least not except for by your own hand. So it doesn't matter that they don't feel, you know, safe or comfortable or even happy when they're with him because physically they're just fine. So that was hard to hear. And the, the judge ordered that we would, instead of um, having the court date that was two weeks from the interviews, we would be looking at mediation in the new year. So that meant another three months of uncertainty. And I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that he's not going to back down. So there's no mediation to be done. He's just going to hold out until he gets what he wants because 
that's the only power he can have over me right now is dragging this out and making me wait. And I said to him the other day, we got a call from the realtor. I got a call from the realtor and he says, okay, we've got a, now I wasn't, we didn't have the house listed, but the realtor says we have an all cash offer. They can close in two weeks for your house. And it was an appropriate sum. And all my ex said was, okay, well, that's food for thought. Instead of jumping on it because the market's only going to go down, we're, we are not getting back together. This is a deal that we should take. But he, a couple weeks after that, looked at me and said, I would let the price of this house go into the negative before I will give up on my pursuit of 50-50 custody. So he thinks, and I'm not savvy enough to know the difference, um, he thinks that he can let this drag on in the courts for as many years as he wants so that he can either bankrupt us or get, um, you know, withhold the house uh, or the sale of the house from me. And therefore, I mean, that's partially my credit and that's partially my, you know, my responsibility and also drag out the divorce. So um, at this point, I have to decide what's more important. Do I, do I let him have not only 50-50 custody, but whatever he wants so that I can be done with this circus? Or do I stand up for what I know to be right, which is that, you know, I want a more consistent schedule and I want for the kids to be able to do the activities that they want to do because he won't allow them to do things that he doesn't deem appropriate. So, for example, he will not be taking them to Taekwondo this summer and he refuses to let me take them to church school on his Sundays. And, you know, just things that he doesn't agree with. Um, So do I say, fine, you know, don't don't bring them to activities that they enjoy and you can have them 50 50 and, you know, we'll do everything your way and then be done. Or do I, you know, fight and then be out more and more money and more and more time and have to put up with, you know, him being this really huge presence in my life for, you know, years to come. So I know it's impossible to have a healing process while you're still going through this process and you're in contact with him. And it's difficult in general to have a, you know, a linear healing process as a whole. But when you have kids with someone you know, you're going to constantly deal with issues, counter-parenting. You know, he's been counter-parenting this whole entire time. It's not going to stop. So within that, how have you been able to cope, I think is the best word right now, instead of heal? Um, until I moved out, it was impossible. Uh, because we are still fighting regularly and seeing each other. So since I've been able to get out of the house, it has been, you know, more possible for me to spend time 
on myself versus just taking care of the children all the time. He does have them 50-50, which is really hard for me to emotionally manage, but it also gives me the time to kind of just, you know, be with myself and and process and do things that I enjoy doing and seeing friends. So, you know, those same people who supported me, you know, while I was thinking about leaving are the same people who are, you know, talking to me regularly still about things or that I get to, you know, vent to a little bit about if, you know, this something happens that um, makes me angry when there's a pickup or drop off or something. And so I have been reading a lot. There's so much reading of books um, that and, and articles. And I've been watching tons of um, videos on narcissists. And I've also been listening to as much of your catalog as I've been able to, to hear stories um, from people who have experienced similar um, relationships or, or, or um, interactions with people. And it's just been um, as with everything in my life, it's a project. Like I am myself, I am my own project right now. Like I need to learn as much as I can so that I can understand why everything happened, even though there is no real understanding of, of why people are the way they are. And so it's just a lot of learning and a lot of processing and talking through, um, everything with people. I have a, an older cousin who went, through a similar experience a, a couple years ahead of me. And so that has been really important to my, um, you know, to my processing of, of everything, to be able to talk with somebody who has experience. Because my other friends, um, you know, they are so supportive. But if you don't know a person like this, you can't imagine that they would do the things that they do because none of us want to believe that someone, a person is capable of treating another human being, especially an intimate partner with such disregard and evil almost. It's, it's hard for people to imagine. So having, you know, friends and, and, and relatives who are able to talk with me and, um, connect with me on that, that it's, it's been very helpful. And if you had any words of wisdom for everyone listening, what would they be? So you are not just what others say that you are. There's just nothing that you should be, or that I should be embarrassed about or shamed about engaging in relationships with, with these people. Um, I think that's why so many people wait to get out because it's so embarrassing that you didn't see it or that you didn't notice or that you, you know, you ignored things. Well, they're brilliant and manipulative and they're subtle. And, you know, to use, you know, a word related to narcissists, they're covert about everything that they do. So, you know, their victims or survivors can be, you know, educated and smart and strong and it doesn't matter because they're so good at what they do. So, you know, we we survivors are um, amazing human beings 
that got out of something that was really awful and dangerous and harmful. And um, rather than feeling embarrassed or, or ashamed, we should feel empowered and, um, you know, I guess that peace that we're no longer under the control day-to-day of this other person who was so harmful to us. Well, Maya, I really want to thank you for being here with us today and sharing your story. And, you know, you're still going through it and we'll be here for you you know, until the end and we'll have you back on to find out what happened through the whole entire process because that will be its own long story. But just a really big thank you for being here with us today. And, you know, as I say to pretty much everyone, and if I didn't, then I probably forgot to say it, what is like just sharing your story is going to help save someone's life. And you did that today. And just thank you for, for being here. Thank you. Well, thank you once again, Maya, for being here with us today. And for everyone listening, if you want to be a guest on our show, please go to our website at NarcissistApocalypse.com. Top of the page, there's a button that says Guest Form. When you click on that button, it takes you to our Guest Form page. And there you can read all of our instructions. And either send us an email at NarcissistApocalypse at gmail.com or fill out our Guest Form and press the Submit button. And please do send it in the format that we ask for. And if, you are, and if you are someone that needs support, we here at NarcissistApocalypse.com have a support group. So at NarcissistApocalypse.com, top of the page, you'll see a support group button. And when you click on that button, it takes you to our very own safe social network. Inside, you'll see that we have Zoom meetings every Wednesday night, Thursday afternoons, and Saturday nights. We also have forum boards for you to post on to get the validation that you need from survivors just like you. And you can validate other survivors as well and make friends. It's a wonderful group of people on there. So if you need support, please join our support group today. And if you need even more support, please do visit our friends at DomesticShelters.org. At DomesticShelters.org, they have articles and resources to help you make sense of what you're dealing with. They have every phone number and email address and every web address for shelters and agencies, no matter how big or small the town you're in. DomesticShelters.org has it there. It's a wonderful free resource and organization. So if you need extra support, please do go to shelter. Please do go to DomesticShelters.org. And we have another friend of the show called Shelter Movers. So you can reach Shelter Movers at sheltermovers.com. And Shelter Movers helps survivors of domestic violence transition to a better and safer life. They are currently just a Canadian company, but looking to expand in the United States. It's a volunteer organization and a donor-supported charitable organization as well. And what they do is they help coordinate moves for people who are getting out of domestic violence. And it's an interesting part of the escape process. They help you get you. They help get you to safety by getting things out of your home, setting things up into storage. All of your belongings are put into storage, and they can do this for your pets and livestock too. It is a wonderful organization. So if you need help from them, or you just want to donate them, donate to them, please go to ShelterMovers.com and check them out. And that is it for today's show. So for myself and Maya, we hope you have a good night.